Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's been a lot of talk about the impact of the pandemic and other issues on the bike industry. We've heard how a lot of big-name international brands are struggling to get their bikes to buyers because crucial components, often being shipped or flown from the other side of the world, are just not available. What about the impact lower down the chain, the small manufacturers who've been part of a renaissance in custom and bespoke building? And in a world where high-tech carbon rules, what's the place for hand-built steel? Well, to find out, I went to Ison, the multiple award-winning maker of high-end steel and titanium bikes, at their workshop in South London. Karen Hartley and Mac McDonough began by explaining how they got into frame building in the first place. So I was trained as a metal worker um, from kind of really fine metal work, um, like jewellery, through to much bigger scale sculpture, um, in um, like foundry work and I was working as an artist and just kind of I guess fell out of love with it decided that I wanted to make something a bit more practical um, that was used basically yeah that would sort of yeah be used daily Um, and when I realized people were making custom bikes in the UK I realized that I could transfer a lot of my skills from what I was doing currently into making essentially a bike shaped object rather than a an object to go on someone's wall or mantelpiece. <laughs> were you interested in bikes at the time? Were you riding bikes? At yeah, the time? so I was already riding bikes. I had a lot of friends in the industry and uh, yeah, it was becoming a sort of a bigger part of my kind of social life and my leisure time. How about you, Matt? How did you get into it? Uh, I've worked at a bike trade since I left school, so I was a mechanic. If you're working as a mechanic, sort of even if you're working in fancy shops or not, the main part of your work tends to be the sort of boring services and punctures so you end up finding things to interest yourself uh, avenues to go down so it would be you know wheel building or we started like rattle can painting our own bikes stuff like that it was sort of just logical way to keep keep myself occupied um to start with um and a friend of mine had like an eighth of a a railway arch in Loughborough Junction there was another eighth going spare. It was like 80 quid a month. So I ended up just taking that, building terrible frames for um, a year or two. What were the first frames you built? Just things for me to use. So they were lugged. So the benefit of lugs, the tooling you need is, in, is very, very minimal. I had a vice, hacksaw, some files, map gas and silver solder. 
that was it really. And you didn't learn, you didn't like apprentice with anyone or study under anyone. You just kind of no. I mean, I've never, I've never, I've never done well in formal educational settings. Would probably be a nice way of saying it. Um, so that does, and even to this day, like sitting down and listening um, to someone talking at me about something doesn't really. It just doesn't work. My brain just turns off. So I've always learned by doing, so to speak. Uh, I mean, at the time, this was a while ago for me, I think that there was only like Dave Yates running the course. And I had worked with Ted James at Evans and he had gone on the Dave Yates course. But it was like, it was a lot of money. Didn't like, as I said, sitting down and it, there was like a two year waiting list or something. Obviously nowadays there's a lot more options, but for me personally, I'd rather spend the money on materials and tools. How about you, Karen? What was the first, uh, what were the first frames you built? Were they for yourself? The first act- the whole frame I built was for a friend of mine, Jenny, who runs London Bike Kitchen. And she kind of, she needed a bike. She'd had a bike stolen. All of her customers had basically chipped in to give her some money to buy a new bike but she couldn't find a bike she wanted um, or couldn't find a bike that fit her, basically. Um, she's similar height to me, quite small. Um, so she said, how about I give you some money, you buy a bunch of tubes and you make me a bike with it. And I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> you know, I've never made a bike before. <laughs> she's like, yeah, I trust you. I was like, OK. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> um, it turned out pretty good. So, yeah, I mean, it's not the best bike I've ever made, but all things considered, it's... It's a reasonably nice bike. <laughs> so then you formed, set up Hartley Cycles, um, and Matt, you set up Talbot Cycles. Now you've come together as Eisenworks. What, um, what was the decision, what was the thinking behind that? We'd been talking about how to make, try and like streamline our businesses a bit more because we were just making sort of totally one-off, custom, fully bespoke pieces every time. Um, and that kind of means that every single one is a prototype, essentially. It's really time-consuming and labour-intensive, and that's that's fine, that's part of the job, but we thought maybe alongside that we could have a range of models of bikes where we kind of refine all our knowledge. What we've learned over this you know period of time that, that we think is the best way of making a road bike, the best way of making a gravel bike, you know, like a really sort of refined product I think we'd both been thinking about it independently Matt had been sort of half trying it haven't you and and then we started talking we realized that we'd both been thinking about it and we were like wait a minute maybe this is something we can I mean at first we imagined it as a sideline to our existing businesses and then as it's turned out it's become the main focus so at the moment you effectively have a sort of a range of bikes which you can order um but presumably made to order yeah so we don't carry stock of anything how you imagine these things to will work out and how they work out there's minimal relationship between the two trying to balance what works from a productivity point of view and what people actually want the bikes that people will pay for so we don't carry stock everything is built to order Part of the appeal of buying a bike from a company that builds your bike to order is that there is a certain amount of ability to customise that. From a sizing point of view, so we've, we've built quite a, quite a lot of bikes now. Most people can fit on 
like a square, a square bike. But there are either aesthetic penalties you have to pay for that, so you end up with a load of spaces maybe, or sort of more problematically, you've got handling prices that you'll pay if you end up with a very short stem, for example. That's resolvable, you've resolved that and the person fixed on the bike, but you're spending, there's no way to pretend it's not a lot of money. We started off thinking, oh, we're just going to do standard sizes, this is what you get. Pretty quickly we realised that you're giving people something that could be better and because we're not carrying them in stock, it isn't the end of the world to do custom geometry, for example. But then how do you streamline that process? Because custom geometry means a lot of backwards and forwards. And I think that's, I think that's always the, that, the jump that we made between the different size company and it's actually the, the manufacturer of the bikes. That's not a problem but it's everything else. And generally, is it working for you? It keeps working, and then, you know, there's a, there's a global plague or Brexit. We've been in situations where we can't get materials, you know, and that's a big deal. We're quite lucky because we do make frame sets. I think you all know the, the bike industry, com- like, componentry-wise, it is utter carnage. So a lot of stuff we've got lead times for, and it's 2023, you speak to the manufacturers and they're like, yeah, that's, that's a guess, you know, and it's not a good guess. So this is like drivetrains and parts Exactly, and group like sets that, yeah. and the sort of bikes that we're selling there with the higher-end group sets and those tend to be the ones that are worse, worse off. And we're lucky that because we're specking things to order, we can kind of, you know, there are ways, there are ways around it and we, we can generally find things, but we still, our lead times are still increased for full for full bikes than they would have been a year ago but I think in some ways we're lucky that if we were let's say putting 105 on everything and we needed that group set we'd be in trouble because we wouldn't be able to get that group set but we can go okay would you want SRAM or do you want Campag or let's let's work around this so I think we are in a stronger position and we can sell frame sets you know because and the because everyone's in the same position it's not like you've got a choice between buying a complete Roubaix or a frame set off of us there's no bikes there's no bikes with components and we're also lucky that we're the ones actually doing the manufacturing you'll know like there's numerous firms where they were having things I haven't made in the Far Easter in Europe and they've gone to the wall because they just can't get things made so we're lucky in that regard we have to tell ourselves but it's been an interesting few years i'd say i think also what we didn't realize was going from independent frame builders you're basically on the ground doing all of the manufacturing doing everything start to finish and so that involves the much less communication because you already know at what stage everything is so and then all of a sudden we were like essentially entrepreneurs and then we're running a business and having to communicate okay and like learning all of these things as well so i think that's for me been the biggest learning curve where you've got to have systems for making sure that the next person knows what stage this thing's at and and all the kind of the business side behind it which I think as a kind of an independent or sole trader you kind of just muddle through (laughs) I guess really and you just sort of I don't know it's it's less critical. And the sort of categories of bikes the broad categories of bikes that you um, make the road gravel adventure etc is that based on what people are asking for? I think two things I think it's based on what the riding that we like doing um, and 
what we think people want. So definitely there's been a shift towards gravel in the last couple of years. So whereas maybe five years ago we were making mostly road bikes and if you wanted a gravel road bike, people might want 32C tyres on and everyone went, oh my God, that's huge. And now that's sort of like, that's a road tyre essentially now. Um, So there's definitely been a shift there and that's based on what people want. But I think when we're trying to develop and refine the models, we start with the type of riding that we like doing because I think we're best placed to understand what bike is needed for that riding. So the first bike we made was the All Season, which is essentially um, an endurance road bike, a sort of all-daxing bike that you can put a bigger tyre on. So it's a sort of a do-it-all bike because that was a kind of do-it-all road bike because that was the riding that we were doing a lot of at the time so we were like okay what do we need for that we want mud guards we want dynamo routing we want the ability to put a bigger tire on um we still want it to be nimble and fast feeling um so we developed a bike around that and then sort of each time we've brought in a new model bar with the race bike because none of us are racers but we, <laughs> we developed that with crit racers um each time we developed a new model we've looked at the type of riding we like doing and the type of bike that we thought was best suited so the goat for example is a kind of a cross-country bike packing mountain bike because that's the kind of off-road riding I like doing it's not it's not a downhill bike because I don't want to throw myself down a mountain but it's like it's sort of it's really well suited to to traveling long distances off-road um with a load of kit so that's sort of what we've done and the derelict was the bike that that you you maybe you should explain it, but that's the bike that you wanted to ride, I guess. So when I first started uh, working as a mechanic, you could buy Trek single track 990s, which were like Truox Temper Free Tubing, Kona Wee Wee's and Stump Jumpers. They're not, they're not a lot of fun to ride off road, but they were amazing for using as commuter bikes and going touring on, uh, going camping with, uh, which is what, you know, we were using them for. If you had the choice between, if you viewed a frame set and components as like two parts of the bike, um, if you take it, it's whether you know a cross-country bike or a road bike, you take a an old an old school frame and then put modern components on. Quite often, that's an amazing bike. The the other way around, a modern frame and old like early 90s components and it's pretty shit really i still was using my trek when i was riding here you don't like i didn't really want to use my all seasons because i was just ruining a you know di2 group set commuting into mitchum it's a waste and you shouldn't be really riding someone else's bike if you're you know building building bikes for a living so the the derelict was basically uh, an updated 90s cross-country bike brought up to date for using in town and then also you know using if you want to go camping it's not going to be super fast on anything particularly technical or particularly muddy but it's going to be you know uh, you're going to be able to ride it you're going to be able to have fun over the weekend and you're going to be able to load it up there's a lot of uh, noise about when people design bikes and this revolutionary this and, and that and there's not really I mean especially not with road bikes they've been the same for for a long long time as far as the the geometry is concerned there's interesting things going on at the at the the edges of 
mountain biking, downhill stuff with hand, with geometries and handling, but not for. I, I would query. There's probably two places in the UK that you really need dual suspension. You know, there's not there's not a lot. So you're refining when you when you when you're building a frame, and you're. The, the, the aim of the game is to make something well you, you want to make it well picking the right you know there's there's choices to be made but a lot of the work has been done before being smaller we can make better choices though because i think that's that's kind of part of the part of the benefit of making to order is if someone needs a slightly different wheel size a different fork or something to make to refine that that bike and make it work for them we can make those choices whereas um if you're a bigger manufacturer you've got one one fork for everything one this one that and you you're sort of shoehorning people into the bike whereas we can although maybe the like the road bike geo hasn't changed much for 30 40 50 years even we can make sure we've got the weight distribution of the person in the right place we can make sure that the handling is is perfect for them rather than trying to start with the bike and work backwards. And that's presumably why people come to you or companies like you rather than going to a shop and buying something off the shelf. Yeah, yeah, definitely. People are spending a lot of money on bikes. You know, you can you can spend 10 grand on a specialised or a, a, fa- a bike built in a factory in Taiwan. There's nothing wrong with that bike. It'll be a really good bike, but you could spend a similar amount and you could get a bike made by somebody where you've got input somebody that you've seen in a workshop that you've come to visit you've been able to make choices about that frame that are for your your riding style your benefit and it will cost you a similar amount so I think as the industry as a whole's moved on people have started to realize that they can get more for a similar amount of money I guess. There seems to be a bit of a trend for people rather than buying say you know, a specific road bike, a touring bike, a off-road bike, a gravel bike so, but to try and buy bikes that can do more than one thing. Yeah I think definitely and I think that maybe that's because people are spending more money so if you're going to spend a big chunk of money on a bike you can't you don't want it to be completely single-minded because then you'd be like oh if I can only use this on my Sunday club run that's a lot of money to spend on like I get to ride one day a week so I think there's that and I think also I think I've noticed I mean I didn't because I wasn't in the cycling industry for a really long time before so I'm sort of new to it but I've definitely noticed amongst myself and my peers and also the people I know in the industry and customers as cycling is becoming more of a common activity people are getting more um, interested in looking at other things as well so they're going they might have started with road cycling and then they're they're going on these country lanes and they're seeing all these little paths and snickets and they're like oh if I had a bike that could go and explore down there that might be nice and so that you know maybe they're they don't necessarily just want a road bike because then that limits your option and people are as people are riding more they're they're realizing that there are other types of riding too so I think that's probably driving it and I think the the tech is there. The two biggest things that have changed in road bike tech, number one, hands down, is tyres, and number two is disc brakes. You know, even when I started frame building, the best you could hope for would be a 28 gator skin, maybe. I think maybe there's a GP4000 in a 28, but good luck jamming that in. Like, you know, there wasn't a lot of bikes where you'd even get that in underneath the brake. 
people do commute a lot more, which is that's a good thing. But if you view cycling as a as a as a leisure activity, and the bikes that I was building when I started, they tended to be bikes that people would use on club runs. They'd be using at the weekends, um, and then those would be road bikes, caliper braked, running quite narrow tires. Obviously, you're using that bike once a week, twice a week, maybe. Um, it's your you know your pride and joy, and you're spending a lot of money on that. When disc brakes and high volume, high quality, lightweight, roll like fast rolling, tubeless road tires became a thing. In the UK, the road, there's the roads are just they're terrible. On a road bike with narrow tires, you're being beaten up, and you're making decisions while riding constantly, avoiding potholes, slowing down for this. So it, you know you have in theory great. These tires are fast rolling on you know, when they've put X amount of watts into it and spun it against an oil drum. But in in practice, you can't use that in the UK. And then all of a sudden, there's... I mean, the first one, when we were fitting them just to every bike, was the, the G1, the 700 by 30 G1. It's just such a game changer to have that and disc brakes. You, and so the disc brakes mean your, your wheels aren't a braking component anymore. Because if you've got a nice, you know, you bought a nice bike, you put some nice wheels on it, and if you're using it all the time, using it in crappy weather, then you're just wearing those wearing those rims out. That's you know, every time every time you're grabbing the brakes, you're losing a little bit of money coming off of the pads. Now you've got disc brakes, so as long as you don't crash, those rims are going to last, you know, for until you get bored of them. Basically, you're not getting beaten up on the bike so much you're using it on the club run but then you think oh I can use that I can use that to go to work as well it made a difference to how we design the bikes so the all seasons which is the injury, light endurance road bike if you rode that bike with 23s it, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have a good time um, over a like long period of time it would beat you up because the tube set that we use is stiff oversized tubing running 30s on it it takes that buzz out, but means that the frame itself, when you stamp on it, going uphill, is very stiff. So it's allowed us to build bikes. Because when people are talking about you know, how a bike feels to ride, and when they're talking about the material, often people talk about uh, the difference in how, how different materials feel, you know, the difference between steel and titanium and carbon. In my experience, actually, most people, they want the same thing out of any bike, which is they want a bike that's comfortable when they're sitting on it, direct when they're stamping on it, going uphill. And you're, that's the battle that you're having when you're picking material and what tubes you're using. That was the biggest thing for, for me that changed how people were buying bikes and how they would use bikes. It made it possible that you could basically have one bike. You could be fast on Sunday and ride to work for the rest of the week on the same bike. And that was disc brakes and disc brakes and tires. Also wheel size as well, because on the your season you can put a six fifty B on so you can up your tire size even more and so a lot of our bikes have a couple of wheel sizes that it'll work with, so you don't even have to change it. You know, you don't have to change your tyres. You can have okay, these are my off-road wheels, these are my road wheels, and that means like a really quick change, and you've essentially got two bikes straight away. 
Well, I want to ask some more questions about material, some brief questions about the material, in particular about steel and why people continue to use steel. Um, but to hear those answers, you're going to have to listen next week to the Tech Podcast, the Ruler Tech Podcast with Dan Cavallari. Um, but for now, Karen Hartley and Mac Donna, um, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Why, hello there. Podcast interruption alert, but I will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, you will love the regular magazine. So if you're not a reader already, then you can subscribe at ruler.cc for as little as £6 per month. If you don't speak Northern Irish, that's six times 100 pennies. And for the price of a few coffees, you get regular columns from the wonderful Ned Bolting, myself, Orla Shinawa, and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is, all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication. Go to ruler.cc. I'll leave you to it. Thanks, Orla. And the upcoming issue 109 of Ruler is even more special. It's the Enable issue, entirely devoted to Paralympic sport and disabled athletes performing extraordinary feats on the world stage. Starring Christina Vogel, Kadina Cox, Barcelona's Genesis team, Marion Clinier and much more. We have a reading from that edition, a column written by Ned Bolting, coming up very shortly. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacquer. Bicycle insurance powered by the community. So my name is Oren Peleg and I'm an investor in Lacquer. Three things that really caught my eye. The first one is, is they're looking to change the insurance industry, which is a very large industry and I think needs change. The second thing is, is I'm deeply passionate about getting people onto wheel. We need to address our congestion and pollution crisis, and I believe that two wheels have a massive role to play in that. And the third thing is, I can see a growing trend around companies building on the strong communities that they have, and I think Lacquer's business model in the way they tap into the community of cyclists is something that's very much on trend at the moment. Now, Phil Wright reads Paralympia by Neb Bolting from Ruler, issue 109. Even for our breath we should thank God, for we do not know if we will breathe again. I could have died. It is not a fixed life. Perhaps I will be a loser or a winner. Half an hour later, everything might change. Zachar Neamati, April 2014. Of the many books I have started and never been able to finish, there is one which stands out. Having been fortunate enough to work for Channel 4 in the UK on their TV coverage of the London 2012 Olympics and the 2013 World Para Swimming Championships in Montreal, I was so drawn into the world of para sport that I started to try to write about it. The working title of my book was simply Paralympia and its scope was to encompass pretty much everything. You know, the whole damn lot. From Formula One's Alex Zanardi's astonishing hand-cycling career to the fortunes of England's blind football team. The book meant starting with Sir Ludwig Gutmann, the German doctor who revolutionised the treatment of people with spinal injuries, many of them injured war veterans at Stoke Mandeville in the late 1940s. 
In a beautiful Suffolk village, I met with his remarkable daughter, Ava Leffler, as she recounted her childhood spent with her fierce but inspirational father, who changed the perception of disability forever. Then I spent a few days in Stockport with a local boccia player, a trans man with a rare genetic condition that left him needing high levels of care, who was about to make history when he adopted a baby with multiple needs. At the time, he was just starting off on a botcher career, which eventually led him to represent his country. After that, I became obsessed with the story of Sebastian Rodriguez, the multiple gold medal winning para-swimmer from Spain, who had lost the use of his legs during a hunger strike while he was in prison for terrorist offences, which included his role in the murder of a Seville businessman in 1984. He was 55 years old when he claimed his final medals in London. He and I once drank a beer together late at night outside an Irish bar in Montreal. With Rodriguez unable to speak English and me with no Spanish, the moment was profound, even if a little silent. He drew on a big cigar and looked contentedly out across the road. I spent time in Namibia, watching the rugby with another swimmer, Gideon Nazilowski who rejoices in the nickname of Gideon the Amphibian Namibian. Born with very short arms and legs, he spoke movingly about his childhood in a pub garden while the Springboks played England on a big screen. Then we piled in his specially adapted car and went for a hell-for-leather drive around Vindhoek, which had me clutching the door handle with white knuckles. On the other side of the country, I was introduced to Johanna Benson, Namibia's only gold medalist, who returned from the London Games to find a street named after her in her Wolvis Bay suburb and the keys to a brand new detached house in one of the poshest districts of the town, all paid for by the state on the instruction of President Hifikipunya Pohamba. I even took part in her training session on the track. came as no surprise to me that over 200 metres, I was soundly thrashed by a 22-year-old with cerebral palsy. Gasping in her wake, I watched her glide away from me. Somehow getting papers to visit Iran, I travelled to the city of Mashhad for the Asian Sitting Volleyball Championships. I followed the tournament closely for 10 days, including the semi-final played between Iran and Iraq. The coaching staff on both teams, former players, had lost the use of legs fighting one another in the war in the 1980s. Sunni and Shia Muslims, they embraced one another like the oldest friends after the game was won by the host nation. I met the gold medal winning archer Zahar Neamati in Tehran, a reluctant flag bearer for women's para sport in the country of her birth. We spoke about the car crash that had changed her life and I found out to my horror that many, many years on the memory still had the power to bring her instantly to tears. But it was while I was in Iran witnessing all this life and near death that I started to lose heart in the book concluding I was not the right person to write it. My life has been a succession of doors which have pushed open for me. Not one of them have I had to kick down. There was a point at which I had to acknowledge that this was not my story to tell, that it belonged to others. And besides, there was a bigger theme in play, one which was staggeringly obvious, but which I had been ignorant of until I started my research. 
The world of Paralympic sport is just that. It's an entire world. It is as varied, complex, glorious, compromised, moving, corrupt, inspirational and hilarious as any other. In fact, it may be more so. And it would certainly never fit into a book, however big. Paralympia by Neb Bolting from the upcoming issue 109, the Enable issue, with subscribers from February the 5th. So go to ruler.cc now and subscribe. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.